Right, if you've got your Bibles with you, you're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. Sermon text is going to be verses 13 to 21 of Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to look at verses 13 to 21. Well known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Please hear this public reading. Of God's word. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to a familiar passage in the Bible. Uh, Certainly, if you grew up in church, we've heard this story since we were children. It's just very, very familiar. But Father, I pray that the familiarity of the passage uh, wouldn't cause us to zone out, uh, wouldn't cause us to think, man, I I know this passage. I've heard it so many times. Because Father, there is much for us to see here. There is much encouragement for us here. There is the glory of Jesus clearly and powerfully on display in this passage, we see the sufficiency of Jesus on display, the weakness of the disciples. So, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by this passage of Scripture today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we come to, yes, a very familiar story in the Bible. It is one of only two miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels, the other one being the resurrection of Jesus. So, this, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, certainly showing the significance of this miracle, and it must have made a tremendous impact on all those who were present. Certainly, the disciples uh, never would have forgotten this day, I wouldn't think. And I will be drawing on the other gospel accounts. It's very interesting to read the four gospel accounts. You can draw some different information from the other gospels, and I will be relying on some of the other gospel accounts today. I'm going to have four points today, all revolving around uh, the person of Jesus, four points all dealing with uh, the person of Jesus. Point number one is the compassion of of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus is point number one. Let me just read the, the very beginning of verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, I'm just going to stop right there for just a second. There's much debate on this in terms of what Jesus is hearing right here in verse 13. I even talked to Mark about this some on the phone, but I'll just sum up. There's two positions that are possible answers in terms of what Jesus heard. Either Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, all the hard details of the death of John the Baptist, or he heard about how Herod has heard about the fame of Jesus, and Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's one of those two views. Lots of people go on either side. For our sake, it doesn't really matter which view you take. The main point is that Jesus wants to get away from the crowd. He wants to get away on his own. That's, that's the main point. So let's read on now. Verse 13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place, by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So basically, Jesus wants to get away. He wants to spend time with his father, likely in prayer. He wants to spend time with the disciples. We know this from the other other gospel accounts. 
Mark's gospel says this. Mark 6, verse 31 says, And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So the crowds are pressing in on them so much so that they can't even eat, so they want to get away and just have some rest time. Jesus wants to spend time praying, wants to spend time probably encouraging his disciples. But of course, he cannot get away. Middle of verse 13 again, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So likely Jesus and the disciples get in a boat. They begin to cross the Sea of Galilee. The crowd sees where they're headed. They can predict where they're going to end up. End up, And they literally, it says in Mark's gospel, they ran around uh, the Sea of Galilee and they get there ahead of Jesus. And there's this giant crowd there. Certainly you can say that the, the crowd had zeal to get to Jesus, but of course their zeal was not so much for the message that Jesus was speaking. And it's not so much uh, for uh, Jesus himself, but we know from John's gospel, the reason why they came is because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're there because Jesus is a miracle worker, essentially, and they want to see what he's going to do next. And likely they're running through the towns and they're telling other people to come see Jesus and see what he's going to do. So you have this giant crowd there that meets Jesus. Of course, my question would be, if you are trying to get away from a crowd, if the crowd is pressing on you so much so that you can't even eat and you want to get away and you head off to get a, get a break, and then when you show up at the place you're headed, the crowd is there and it's even bigger than it was before, how would we respond? My guess is most of us, if not all of us, would be slightly irritated. We'd be irritable and frustrated and just like, are you kidding me? I mean, please, can you give me some time to be alone, but not Jesus? Look again at verse 14 now. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus sets aside his time of priority with the Father. He sets aside his time with the disciples, and he has compassion on the crowd. He has compassion on the crowd, and he heals their sick. So certainly Jesus cares about the suffering in his crowd. He cares about the physical needs of this crowd, and he heals their sick. Likely, he heals all those who are sick. Everyone who is sick who came to Jesus, he likely heals them all. He probably heals all kinds of ailments and diseases. He heals them all. He has compassion on their physical needs. But we also know that Jesus cared certainly about their spiritual needs. We know this from Mark's gospel. Again, Mark 6, 34 says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He views them as lost. It's their lostness that stirs him to compassion. He views them as sheep without a shepherd, so he teaches them uh, from the Word of God. He feeds them first on the Word of God before he feeds their stomach. He feeds them on the Word of God. Luke tells us that Jesus spoke to them of the kingdom of God. He's likely telling them the good news of the kingdom. He's telling them the gospel. He teaches them many things. So here the compassion is not just for physical needs, even though that is certainly there, but he has compassion for their lostness. He views them as sheep without a shepherd. So certainly this crowd is filled with needy people. I'm borrowing this from another pastor, but their number one need, the number one need of this crowd is spiritual. They need to be reconciled with the holy God. Their number one need is spiritual. And certainly our number one need is spiritual. And anybody that we meet on the street, their number one need is spiritual. You could ask maybe 10 or 15 people on the streets of Athens this week, and you, you could ask them, what's your number one need? What's your number one problem in life? And likely you would get all kinds of different answers. It would be physical, material things. But their number one need is spiritual. They need to be reconciled to a holy God. And one pastor that I was listening to, he pointed back to that well-known story, the story of the paralytic man. It's told in three gospel accounts. Mark preached on it a while back from Matthew chapter 9. It's also told, I think, in Luke 5 and uh, Mark chapter 2. But you remember that story of the paralytic man, a wonderful story. He has four friends. They're carrying him on his bed, essentially on his mat, and they bring him to Jesus. Jesus is in that home in Capernaum, and they can't even get to the door. The, the door is covered with people. The whole inside of the house is covered with people, but they are undeterred. They climb up on the roof. They remove tiles from the roof, and they set this man down in the middle of Jesus. Jesus sees their faith. Now, does Jesus immediately say to this man, Son, your 
Take up your bed and walk. You're healed. I heal you. Take up your bed and walk. That's not what he says first. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I'm borrowing this from another pastor I heard years ago on this, and I've never forgotten this. What do you think that man was thinking when, Jesus, when his friends let him down and Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven you? My guess is this man is thinking, what in the world are you talking about? I, my friends didn't bring me here, didn't open up this roof and set me down because they were remotely concerned about my sins. You see, I have legs that don't function properly. This is my biggest need. Now, you remember that scene, the scribes, they begin to question uh, in their hearts, what is this man, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, they're right, but this is God in the flesh who's standing there who can forgive sins, and Jesus knows what they're thinking, and Jesus turns to the scribes and he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he says this, which is easier to say? And you remember Mark preached on this from Matthew 9. He doesn't say, which is easier to do? He says, which is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Well, of course, it's easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, because how can you verify whether or not your words have power? It's harder to say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, because immediately you will tell whether or not your words have any power or validity or not. And this makes this scene so moving. When you understand that buildup, you you can get goosebumps reading this story. And then Jesus turns to them and says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately this man picks up his mat. He walks out in front of all of them. They are amazed and they glorify God. It's an incredible scene there. Now, my guess is if you could go back in time and you could talk to that man on that mat going to Jesus and you stopped him on the street and you said, excuse me, sir, what is your number one need in life? He would look at you like you're crazy. He would say, my number one need is my legs. My legs do not function properly. This is my number one. Clearly, this is obvious. But if we could bring that man from that story, and if he could come here and he could stand right here where I'm standing right now, and if he could speak to North Avenue Church for just two minutes, what would he say? Well, my guess is he would say something like this. I've been living with Jesus in heaven for a long time now. And all those years ago when my friends took me to see Jesus, I thought my number one need in life was having legs that could function properly. But I wanted to come and I wanted to tell you this, that I would have gladly lived my entire life disabled for the joy of knowing the reality of my sins forgiven. You see, my number one need was spiritual and Jesus dealt with my number one need. So Jesus has compassion on the crowd, certainly for their physical needs, but most importantly for their spiritual needs. He views them as lost people. So we certainly want to care about people's physical needs. I love what John Piper said. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Point number two, the test that Jesus gives. Point number two, the test that Jesus gives. Verse 15 of Matthew 14. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. I'll just stop for a second. The disciples, interestingly, come to Jesus and they tell Jesus what to do. <laughs> you send the crowds away. They need to go into the village to buy food. It's a desolate place, meaning this is not a place where you can buy food. Food is not readily available. Verse 16, here's the test that Jesus gives. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. This is a test that Jesus is doing here. One pastor said he wishes he had a video of this moment to see the disciples' faces as they hear Jesus say, you give them something to eat. They would have been absolutely stunned. They would have looked back at the crowd and they look at Jesus, they look at their hands, they don't have any food in their hands, and they're thinking, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. But the disciples must address the problem. Jesus says, but gives no direction. Basically, they can only, they can't dismiss the people. They must deal with this problem. They must face it head on. The disciples, of course, are baffled. The situation seems impossible. Of course, Jesus wants his disciples to see that their supply was hopelessly inadequate. He wants to test them. He wants to test 
their faith. And this is exactly what the Lord will do in our own lives. He wants to strengthen our faith. He might bring trials or different circumstances that press us. He wants to test our faith. This is why I read from 1 Peter at the beginning of the service. Let me read it again. In 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God uses trials. Why? To refine the genuineness of our faith, just as fire refines gold. So Jesus wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to strengthen our faith, and He will use trials to do it. Now, we know from John's gospel that at some point, Jesus goes to Philip directly, and He asks him a point-blank question. We know that Philip was from the general area where this miracle took place, so He asked the local guy. Here's what He says in John 6, verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So he's testing Philip. And we know that verse 6 of John 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows he's going to perform this miracle. He knows he's going to feed all these people, but he's testing the disciples. He's testing Philip. Well, how does Philip respond? Here's what Philip says. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One denarius is a day's wage, so 200 denarii would basically be eight months' wages. Philip is saying eight months' wages. Even if we had eight months' wages, it wouldn't be enough to get each individual person a single bite of bread. Philip's answer shows the immensity of the problem. How do our disciples answer this test? Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. So here's this meager, meager meal is all they have. And they have this massive number of people. It could have been upwards of 20, could have been 20,000 people easily, 5,000 men besides women and children. Massive crowd with this meager little meal. And of course, from John's gospel, we know this is Andrew who finds this little boy and he brings this little boy to Jesus. That's the commendable thing that Andrew does. He's bringing people to Jesus over and over in John's gospel. I think maybe three times. But here's what it says in John's gospel. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many? Seems like Andrew sort of lights his little candle of faith. He brings this uh, little boy with this meal. He would have just, Sproul said, if he would have just stopped right there, he would have been incredible faith. But he says, what are they for so many? He seems to blow out his candle of faith as soon as he lights it. So Philip's answer shows the immensity of the problem. And uh, Andrew shows the meager resources that they were dealing with. Basically, they're saying that there's no way that they can get this done so how did the disciples do on this test? Not very well. They didn't do very well at all. Think about Philip. Likely Philip, when Jesus asked him, where are we to go to buy bread? Likely Philip began to calculate the situation. It's very possible that he went up higher on the hill to get a bird's eye view of the crowd, and he began to calculate how many people were there, and maybe he did quick mental math. He sort of went to the farthest side on the left, and he began to calculate maybe you know, 100 people here, 500, 1,000-ish there, and he went all the way across, maybe 15,000 people, and he began to do mental math in his head, and he started thinking maybe 100 denarii, would that be enough? No, maybe 150, maybe 200. I don't even think 200 would be enough to buy each person a single bite. I'm going to go tell Jesus this answer. Maybe Jesus will be impressed with my quick mental math, and he goes to Jesus with this answer. Well, the, the problem with Phil, Philip's calculation is he forgot to in, include one person. He forgot to include the Lord Jesus. He calculated the situation, but he forgot to calculate with Jesus. One person said Philip forgets or does not see the Lord himself right in front of him. Here's the one who was sleeping in that storm, 
They wake him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the wave. Peace be still. And immediately the response of the cosmos, the sea is like glass. They saw him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal all kinds of diseases. The leper person came to him and Jesus touched him and healed the leprous person. He just healed all kinds of diseases that day, but they don't seem to include Jesus in their calculations. So they didn't do very well on the test. But before we are too hard on the disciples and too hard on Philip, let's think about our own lives for just a minute. When a situation, when a trial comes into our life, are we quick to focus in on human solutions or do we turn to the Lord? One pastor said this, like Philip, we are quick to look for human solutions. Like Philip, we forget who is standing with us. Another commentator said, do we, like Philip, rack our minds to find some solution or do our first thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus? I know I've told this story before. I I love this story from the life of George Mueller, a man of faith, immense faith. And uh, he was traveling. I think he was about 70 years of age. He was traveling by boat to get to Canada. had a speaking engagement there. They ran into, this is the 1800s, they ran into dense fog and they couldn't go anywhere. They didn't have modern navigation equipment, so they're stuck there in this dense fog. And George Mueller goes to the captain. The captain was at least a nominal Christian. And he asked the captain if he could come with him and go down to the chart room in the boat and pray about the fog being removed. Now, the captain thinks Mueller is a bit nuts to, to do this. And so they head down to the chart room to pray. And the captain said that George Mueller basically got on his knees and he prayed like a childlike prayer. He just said something like this, you know, Heavenly Father, if it is consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know, I've got this speaking engagement. I would love to be there on time. He gets up from his prayer. He tells the captain, I believe the Lord has already answered the prayer. The captain goes up and goes out and the fog is miraculously gone. I mean, this was just a normal thing in the life of George Mueller. Miraculous answer to prayer. But by far... My favorite part of that story is when they are heading down to the chart room to pray, the captain turns to George Mueller and he says to to George Mueller, Mr. Mueller, do you know how dense the fog is? Don't you realize how dense the fog is? This is silly to pray about this. And George Mueller's reply shows, shows me his faith. He said, my eyes are not on the density of the fog. My eyes are on the living God who controls every circumstance of life. And I just, I love that response. We are so prone to focus on the density of the fog and not focus on the living God who controls every circumstance of our life. And the story that I can't help but tell here, I've told this before, but it just ties in so well uh, with this point. Uh, Several years ago when we decided we were going to begin our adoption journey, we picked our adoption agency and uh, we got this giant pack of paperwork that we had to work through. It's a home study and you have to check off each step of the way and it takes months and months of time. So we did all through that, finished our home study, turned it in, we're on the waiting list, and our adoption agency sent us a bill for the home study. And it was a pretty significant amount of money. And they also laid out sort of the financial details that we still had to pay. And it was like each step of the way, the price went up and up and up till the end at finalization. It was a very significant number. And you had to pay it all at finalization. Well, you get a bill like that and you get the financial details of all that you owe. What's going to happen? Well, I began to focus on how are we going to pay for this? You, you just start racking your brain. You go to human solutions. I was focused on the density of the fog. I think we're going to have to do fundraisers. We're going to have to do some kind of you know, GoFundMe page. If we do that, what kind of goal are we going to set? How many people have to give? And how much money do we have to have from different people to meet that goal? That's what I was doing. And I went to bed that night. I couldn't even sleep. And it was the sin of anxiety. It was in operation in my soul. And I finally realized man, this is real sin. I've got to go to the Lord. It was, you know, Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made unto God. And that peace, the past understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I remember we even went to our discussion group and they prayed for us during that time. But I should have gone to the Lord immediately when I got that bill. I should have turned to the Lord and said, prayed about it before the Lord. Well, I don't remember how long after we got that bill, not too long after that. I remember my parents wanted to come over. They had something they wanted to tell us. And I mean, I can, I can see this. I can picture this in my mind. I, I, I know exactly where I was sitting. My dad was sitting in the chair across from me. My mom was sitting on the couch next to me. She's on the edge of the couch. 
And she has this wonderful good news that she wants to tell us. She's bursting at the seams to tell us. But my dad wanted to kind of give some preliminary information at the beginning. So he's on, he's on the couch and he begins to give this preliminary information about trust funds, etc. He's going through the basic information. And as soon as he's done speaking, I mean, my mom cannot wait. As soon as she, uh, he's done speaking, my mom burst out. And I don't remember her exact words, but something like this. She said, someone is going to give you guys $20,000 towards your adoption. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you can't even speak. You're filled with such joy. It's such good news that all you can do is kind of smile and just you're stunned. You're stunned into silence. I think the way that I've said it before, I think I turned into the Joker for about a week. I just couldn't wipe the smile off my face. I'm just going around with this weird smile on my face just in light of this incredible, incredible good news. And certainly I was moved. We were moved by the generosity of someone to give us that kind of money. But for me, it was behind that. To me, it was the kindness of God to say, I called you guys to adopt. I'm going to provide the means. Trust me. Trust me. Don't grow anxious. Of course, I don't want to be understood, misunderstood. Uh, so I just have to be clear. You may be sitting out there and think, man, I got this giant student loan. All I got to do is pray about it. Philippians 4, and then someone's going to come over, and that loan is paid off. That's not uh, what I'm saying. It could happen. But what I am saying is when you face a trial, don't focus on the intensity of the fog. Be quick to turn to the Lord for help and for strength. Let me just read what uh, one pastor said here on this. He said this, you have a problem in your home, perhaps with your children or with a roommate, or you have a problem at work or at school and you begin to feel overwhelmed. Do we begin to say, how am I going to get through this? Or do we take the problem to the Lord? You and I will have learned a great deal about walking with the Lord when we have learned to spread each difficulty before him as it comes along. Yes, indeed. Point number three, the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. Let me read from verses 17. Uh, to 21, as we see the sufficiency of Jesus. Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing that he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So certainly we're going to see the sufficiency of Jesus powerfully on display as this miracle unfolds. Certainly the results show how stupendous this miracle was, one commentator said. You have basically maybe 20,000 people. And they have an all-you-can-eat buffet from five loaves and two fish. I think Mark said years ago you have 20,000 people are fed on a happy meal. That's what's going on here. 20,000 people fed on a happy meal. It is a miracle of abundance. Between Jesus' blessing it and the disciples distributing it, a miracle of epic proportions has occurred. Another commentator said, The divine power that created matter out of nothing here causes the existing molecules of bread and fish to multiply. Another guy said he called into being, which did not exist before. He provided visible, tangible, material food for thousands of people out of this meager supply. So what do we see in this extraordinary miracle? We see the sufficiency of Jesus. The disciples had realized the magnitude of the problem. They had realized their meager, meager resources. But look what Jesus says. I love what Jesus says to them. Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Put that little meager amount of food into my hands. He offers this prayer of thanksgiving for this meager amount of food. And then he multiplies it and multiplies it and multiplies it out. What comfort this story should hold for us. What an encouragement this story should be to us. Why? 
Why should we be encouraged by this story? Well, what we learn is that the most feeble resources, when placed in the hands of Jesus, turn into the most glorious sufficiency. The disciples learned that the real sufficiency for serving God lay in our feeble resources, in our poverty and feebleness being put into the hands of Jesus, and out of it he provides bread for the multitude. I love what James Boyce wrote. He's thinking about that little boy who brought his meal. Maybe it was his dinner, maybe it was his lunch, and this is what Boyce writes. He writes these beautiful words. That boy gave his lunch, poor as it was, to the Lord Jesus. That lunch was insignificant as it could be. It was insignificant as the boy was. But the point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant become the sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. That that last sentence is just beautiful. The point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant become the sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. This should encourage us to understand that the little that we have can be used of God. The miracle shows that what little we have may seem useless, but it is not. If we offer it to Jesus, if we consecrate it to Jesus, the miracle teaches us to trust in Christ, to take our poor efforts and make them fruitful in the lives of others. I mean, I could illustrate this over and over again. I have to just try to contain myself. Uh, One pastor, Mark Dever, he mentioned how his church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, it first started way back in the 1800s. It started with a, a lady who started a prayer meeting. This little bitty prayer meeting started, and apparently this went on for years. And then I think in 1870s, they planted a church with 31 people. Now, 150 plus years later, that church has planted so many churches. That church is thriving, but it started with this small little prayer meeting. In the eyes of the world, that seems like meager and nothing, insignificant, but the Lord had used it in a profound way. I think about Joel Beakey. I remembered his, this story that he had told. Uh, I may not get all the details right, but Joel Beakey loves the Puritans. He's a pastor in a seminary, I think professor, written all kinds of books. Amazing uh, output he's done with all his books. But he was 25 years old. He graduated seminary. He got his first pastor. And he's you know, trying to love that congregation well. He's trying to prepare sermons and just preach faithfully from the Word of God. But a few months after becoming pastor of this church, he got a call uh, from a couple from his church had lost a child unexpectedly. And they wanted Joel Beakey to go to their house and comfort them. Joel Beakey said he got his Bible, he went in the car, and he said he felt absolutely unprepared for a moment like that. He said seminary had not taught him how to handle a situation like that. He felt so insignificant in himself, and he prayed that the Lord would help him, strengthen him to encourage this family in some way. He had his Bible, he went in, he said he wept with them, he, he read scripture with them, he prayed with them. He, he left and he said he felt like a complete failure, like he totally let them down. Four weeks later, that couple called him and wanted to say how encouraged they were by his visit. Well, what happened? God used his weakness, his meekerness, and he used it to bring fruit, to bring encouragement in the life of this family who were dealing with such immense suffering. Don Whitney, who's a seminary professor, he's written many, many books. Uh, one of them we've handed out here, uh, Praying the Bible. He's also written a book called Family Worship. Well, he and his wife, uh, after he graduated seminary, they got their first pastorate I think it was a church in Texas, and it was a very difficult congregation to be at. I think he was the 17th pastor in 21 years at this church. I mean, just unimaginably difficult situation. And he didn't go into all these details, but he did say, as a result of that first pastorate, the stresses, the strains were so, so bad, he and his wife had five uh, hospitalizations and two surgeries, and they were told uh, they would never have children, is what they were told. And it looked like that was going to be the case for 16 years. They dealt with infertility, and then miraculously, she got pregnant. And uh, she gave birth to a daughter, and he and his wife sought to raise her in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They sought to instill what he calls family worship. He says family worship is very simple. You can do it in five or ten minutes. He said you read the Bible, you pray together, and you sing together. That's it. And they did this every day with their daughter. Uh, And this is what Don Whitney said. He said, never once 
in all the thousands of times we did family worship, he said, never once did I feel like, man, the Spirit of God descended upon us tonight and everybody was moved. He said, that never happened a single time. He said, actually, often I felt like I wonder if anything was accomplished in that. When he felt discouraged over and over again, did anything happen in this? Well, fast forward, his daughter is graduating from high school. She went to a Christian high school. And the custom at this high school was that the graduate would come on stage and would receive their diploma from their parents. And then they would turn to the parents and they would say a word of thanksgiving to their parents. So Don Whitney is standing there with his wife. Their daughter comes up on stage. They give her the diploma. And she says some words of thanksgiving to her mom. And then she turns to her dad. And she can hardly get out the words. But she, she began by saying she wanted to tell her dad how thankful she was for family worship and how much it had meant to her, but she could not get the words out. She burst into tears, and she collapsed into his arms, and Don Whitney said she sobbed worse than she had sobbed since she was in preschool because she was so thankful for family worship. And Don Whitney said somebody took a picture of that. He said it's his favorite picture uh, with his daughter. But what happened? God used his weakness, his insufficiency, and he did it in a way far beyond all he could ask or imagine. His daughter was so moved by family worship, how profound it had impacted her. So here's the thing. God can take our poor, meager efforts and make them fruitful in the lives of others. Here's the thing. When God does that in the lives of others, how should we respond? Well, we should transfer all that glory to God. I mean, imagine the disciples handing out this food and people are thanking them for the food and they would say, it's this man, he's the one who's done it. I hand out the food, I go back and he's always got more food. All glory be to God and we should be thankful when God brings fruitfulness, fruitfulness in the lives of others. One more story on this, Jab Packer, who wrote the well-known book, Knowing God. I think it was, a, it was a lady who was an editor. She had this idea that Packer should write these articles. And so Packer did, and it took him five years to write these articles. And after five years of putting these articles out, someone decided to publish this in a book. And Packer said he thought this was going to go through one edition. He, he prayed that it was going to help other people, other Christians, and that would be it. We wouldn't hear from it again. I think it was published in 1973. I think it's sold well over 1.5 million copies now. And Packer, I saw him in an interview in 1999. He said that, you know, it's been translated in all these languages. He said in 1999, he was still getting letters every single day from Christians all over the world who were thanking him for writing that book. Well, certainly God used it far more than he could ask or imagine. Here's what Packer said. To God's praise, be it said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I mean, that's how we should respond. To God's praise be it said, and then we thank Lord. I just think there is so much application on this point. I mean, the application is almost endless. I mean, we can apply this to our lives every single day. I'll just mention a few. One pastor said, maybe a mother of, of small children, does it seem impossible to be consistently patient, consistently cheerful in serving and training your children? Well, of course, of course it does. I mean, if you're a parent of young children... How often do you feel like you lose your patience? How often do you feel like you're not disciplining rightly? Are you disciplined out of anger? You feel weak. Well, what do we do? We come to the Lord. We ask Him for strength, maybe with patience. Lord, please help me to be patient with my son or daughter tonight. Help me not to lose my temper tonight. And what happens? You go forth in the Lord's strength, and He helps you in that moment to hold your tongue, to say something encouraging. Well, then you give thanks to God. You praise God when He does that, and you can go on and on. Or maybe you work with a difficult person at work. I mean, how many of us have not worked with a difficult person at work, and they're hard to work with. Well, the danger is that we respond sinfully to that difficult person. So we pray about it. We take it to the Lord. Lord, help me not to be unkind, at least in my mind. Help me not to slander that person. Help me not to be negative towards that person. Then we go forth in the Lord's strength, and the Lord helps us, and we praise God, and we give thanks to God for helping us. Last one I would say, you may be the only believer in your entire family, and you feel like, what am I with so many unbelievers in my family? And you're invited to some family get-together, and you feel like so timid, so scared, and you go to the Lord, you say, Lord, please help me. Help me to maybe just pray at the beginning, before the, before the meal. 
And you get there and you say, can I just offer a prayer? I've just become a Christian recently. Can I please make a prayer? And you pray. And in that moment, you you pray the gospel. You say, thank you for this time. Thank you for this food. But most importantly, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe nothing happens there. But maybe several weeks later, somebody calls you and says, you said Christ died for sins. Can you tell me more? So much application. But the sufficiency of Jesus so clearly on display. Last point, the identity of Jesus. Point number four, the identity of Jesus. Let me read verses 18 to 21 again. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the identity of Jesus. One commentator said, This feeding of the multitude is a visible parable meant to incite the crowds to serious thinking about Jesus' mission and identity. Another pastor said, This miracle is a staggering testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. So we saw the sufficiency of Jesus, and I believe you see the divinity of Jesus on display as this miracle unfolds. There was an article I read written by John Bloom, and he uses his imagination. He sort of pictures an imaginary conversation between Andrew and Philip as they're picking up the leftover uh, fragments of food. Each disciple is going to have a basket, and they're, they're collecting this food, and they're having this conversation. You know, I think Andrew says to Philip, Philip, how many loaves of bread do you think we handed out today? And Philip says, I, I don't know. I handed out probably a few thousand, just me. And then Philip says to Andrew, how many fish do you think we handed out? He said, I, I don't know. I mean, thousands upon thousands of fish. All I know, every time I would hand out fish, I would go back, and Jesus always had more. Both of them looked over at Jesus in wonder. Andrew said, whatever he did is beyond comprehension. Philip, we may have been the first to eat miracle food since the manna last fell in the wilderness. And the idea is, who is this man that can feed a multitude from such a meager amount of food? Well, the very next day, we know that Jesus is talking to the same crowd. He tells them. Uh, who he is. He basically says that he's the true bread from heaven. John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Mark, years ago, preaching on that text, he said, saving faith means coming to Jesus as the bread of life and the water of life so that your soul will never hunger and never thirst again because you are satisfied in him. John Piper says that the ultimate point of the miracle was to point to Jesus himself as the bread of heaven. The point was not mainly that Jesus gives bread to satisfy our stomachs, but that he is bread to satisfy our souls. Years ago, when I was a member at Faith Presbyterian Church, we used to have a small group. We would meet every single week, and typically we would discuss the previous week's sermon, and then we would pray together. But once a month, we would sing together. We had a guy, had a guitar, and we just all were sitting in this living room, about 15 of us, and we would sing songs together. It was by far and away my favorite time there uh, every, every time we did that was singing. And one song that I often suggested was a song called Satisfied, and the beginning of that song goes like this. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Basically, we, we go to the broken cisterns of the world and they can never satisfy. You can go to sports or relationships, career, money, whatever it is, nothing will ultimately satisfy. And then this line of the song says this, Hallelujah, He has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through His blood, I now am saved. You see, the point of the loaves is to let your eyes run up the beam of glory to see the one who, with a simple word in prayer, can feed thousands of people with a little basket full of food. See him, love him, know him, make him your treasure. Let's pray together.
Dear Heavenly Father, what an incredible passage of Scripture. Uh, It is moving to think about just the compassion of Jesus on this crowd. He wants to get away. He wants some time alone, probably to spend in prayer and spend with His disciples. But He puts that aside, and He has compassion. He he heals the sick. He feeds them. But we know ultimately He he was concerned about their spiritual well-being. He he viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. And our number one need is spiritual. We need to be reconciled to You, and we need to have our sins forgiven. So, Father, help us to be compassionate towards people, but help us to most importantly care about people's spiritual well-being. Father, we think about the test that Jesus gives. He's testing their faith, and the disciples don't do very well. But so often we don't do very well when trials come. Help us to be quick to turn to you when trials hit. Help us not to calculate the situation without Jesus. Help us to be quick to pour out uh, our trials before you uh, one by one. Help us to, to have our faith strengthened when we face trials. But Father, what an encouragement to think about the sufficiency of Jesus in this miracle. This meager meal, and yet Jesus makes it into a glorious sufficiency. So Father, I pray that we would bring our weakness, our uh, insufficiencies to you. And I pray that when you use us in some way to encourage someone else or whatever it may be, I pray that we would be quick to point to you and to your glory and that we would be deeply grateful. And Father, we're thankful that Jesus is the true bread from heaven. We're thankful that he is the bread of life who alone can satisfy our souls. I pray now that our worship would be honoring to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.